We didn't know where um, the terrorists were. We didn't know where the gun sh the gunfire could come from, or, or in or if indeed um, there was a sniper, as as we had you know thought as we were going in. So what we chose to do was to try as much as possible to take the lead uh, from um, security agencies and be behind them. My name is John Allen Namu. I'm a Kenyan investigative journalist and the co-founder of Africa Uncensored, which is an investigative and in-depth journalism collective uh, based in Nairobi, but working uh, in different parts of Africa. This is a special podcast episode. I am Dickens Olewe. On Tuesday, Kenya suffered another major terrorist attack. Five armed men entered the Ducit Hotel and complex in Nairobi and started a killing spree. As I recall this, the government says 21 people lost their lives in the attack and many more were injured. John was one of the many journalists who reigned to the scene to report on the story. His brilliant report is on YouTube and I highly recommend it. I reached out to him to talk about the coverage of the attack and other issues, but I started by asking him about where he was when he heard about the Ducit attack. So I was um, coming back from uh, an interview. My, myself and um, my colleagues, uh, Sam Munia and Elijah Kanye, were coming back from an interview um, that was uh, in Parklands, which isn't too far from West, the Westlands location where the, the Ducit uh, corporate complex is located. So we were on a bypass, which is quite close to Riverside Drive, when we started to hear uh, gunshots and a loud bang. In, in, instinctively, you know, I sort of like, um, stuck my head out of the window to, to try and figure out, you know, what exactly is going on. And as I did that, the, the bursts of uh, gunfire became longer. They were heavier. You could tell that it wasn't uh, low-caliber weapons. So all of us almost um, instinctively just, you know, looked at each other and said, hey, let's go and figure this out. The guys got their cameras um, and mics out of the, out of the back of the car. And um, we, we, we started running um, towards the place we thought it was pretty close. When we figured out that we were about maybe, maybe 500, 600 meters away, we, we flagged down some, uh, some border borders, some motorcycles that got us closer. And then that's when we, f we saw the first um, casualties. Two men um, who, seemed, who knew, appeared to know each other were fleeing from the direction of uh, the Ducif complex. Both had uh, what looked like gunshot wounds. So the first instinct, instinct of course, is um, while we're working, while we're filming, to try and see if we can get them to safety. And that's what we tried to do. Fortunately, there were other motorcyclists that stopped and um, ferried them away, hopefully to hospital. I really want to pick up on, on that because, in fact, it was actually one of my, my questions. You and your crew ran to the scene as fast as you could, but then you stopped to help these people who were, who were shot. I mean, the question is, therefore, why did you do it? Um, I think that, that, that the question should be, why not? The thing about covering situations like this is that oftentimes you do get overwhelmed by the sheer scale of 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 um, injury, the, the scale of suffering um, when you're confronted with a beast, like when you're right in front of where everything is happening. I think fortunately for, for us, we got there, you know, in state, we were able to experience that in, in stages and in phases. So the first two people that we saw instinctively, we, we thought these are people that we can help. We can't just film them and then leave them, you know, 
um, to you know uh, leave them twisting in the wind with injuries to boot. And, and we, without even discussing it, we're all in agreement that that's what we should do. Um, I think it, it comes also from years of covering these things and feeling helpless in a situation where you know that you have a job to do, but at the same time, there's this very human issue that's in, unfolding in front of you that you must, you just respond to as a fellow human being. So I, I really don't have a why other than that. It, it, it just was the thing to do in a moment. In another clip, uh, you were comforting uh, a woman who was really worried about her family members uh, thinking that yeah. they were still trapped in the building. I mean, if I hear what you're saying is that what you did, you know, stopping and trying to get help for these men who were, uh, were shot and also comforting uh, this woman that I've just talked about, that this is yeah. in, in no way in conflict with your job of bearing witness. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, if anything, it is important that that side of uh, journalists' humanity becomes a part of, um, of what they do. And traditionally, I know we're supposed to be dispassionate bystanders, um, observing, observers rather, not bystanders, but observing what happens and unfolds it so that you can, unfolding so that you can um, relay this information in an as dispassionate um, way as possible. But we are human beings, and I don't think that in, in, in the face of a tragedy, I don't think that anybody um, in their right minds would challenge the notion that my journalism has been affected because I chose to comfort someone who was in pain. Um, pain is universal. It's a, it's a universal um, concept. It's something that we all experience. And it doesn't make me any less of a journalist if I choose in a moment where I'm actually intruding in a person's life after such an, uh, a shocking event, asking them you know, for, uh, for information, if I stop and choose to you know, just see the humanity in her and comfort her, I, I don't think that it interferes at all. Now, there's this one video which I've seen many people uh, share it on uh, on Facebook and actually criticize the journalists. And this was a shot of uh, this woman who had just been freed, shocked, um, running out of breath. But then you had journalists, uh, you know, putting the microphone uh, in front of her and asking repeated questions. I mean, there are those who will say that the journalists have every, not, not necessarily every right, but they also, at that moment, want to capture the horror and the shock. Uh, and, and if you ask for permission, whether you can interview, um, uh, you know, the, this woman, for example, then that, in a way, means that you are denying, um, you are, in, in essence, not covering the moment. So, I mean, maybe, maybe the best thing in answering this question is, you've done this for a long time. What what yeah. are the top maybe tips, if if you like, of interviewing people who have gone through uh, the situations that I've just explained? I think one of the things that I would I would um, tell people would be just think about, and and I'm not trying to ask people to put themselves in the shoes of um, of a victim, but I think the the more urgent. Um, thing to do at that moment, if you're capturing a moment, is to actually capture it. By asking people questions at that point is actually an intrusion in what they naturally would have done. They, a person who's just survived an attack needs to find shelter, needs to find safety. 
I think that's the immediate thing on their mind. And and by stepping back and just taking a beat and, and observing that the richness of what you're trying to 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 get out of that moment then becomes you know more natural. It it comes out more effortlessly because you didn't interfere with this person. There's always time to go back and well, there's not always time, but in a situation where the the the, the area where survivors are, are being taken to is is a controlled area, and there's there's people who's receiving them, there's time there's time enough for you to go and you know give them a moment, and and then be very gently also you know ask them to relate their experience. Um, well, somebody I, will probably push back, John, and tell you this yeah, is a fast-moving yeah. story. There's a lot true, of development. True. I want to gather as much as I can. I mean, I don't have, yes, yes. Uh, you know, in terms of storytelling, I just don't have time to, you know, give uh, these people that I want to interview time to recover. I mean, what would you, what would be a reaction on, mm-hmm. on that? I don't think that every person who who comes out of um, of a situation like that would be willing to talk. I think it's really just being able to sense the moment. I think I should have said that first. Be be um, have a sense of occasion and also a sense of of what exactly this person seems like they're willing to do, and 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 let them take the lead. In the scheme of things, yes, gathering information is important, but. In the scheme of things, um, I'd, I'd also say of equal importance is to ensure that you are not an impediment to someone's, you know, to to someone's ability to recover, and and that's that's a balance. That's a very tricky and slippery, um, you know, slope to climb. But it's one that we must try as journalists to navigate, right? Um, Information is secondary to safety. And if a person feels unsafe, then what kind of quality of information are you going to be able to get from them? How do you balance your safety and the need to tell the story in a place where there is an active and dangerous incident going on? Um, uh, let, me, let me speak from this more recent experience. Um, what our priority was, was essentially yes, to try and find out what was happening. But as we heard the gunfire, we, we knew that we couldn't advance because we didn't know what the situation was like. And given the explanation that we had got from uh, some people who had witnessed uh, the terrorists' car drive in and them jump out, uh, we knew that the situation was very live and possibly in, incredibly dangerous, uh, not just to the people inside there, but to us as well. Fortunately, um, when the police arrived, that gave us a level of comfort that um, in the event that there was that there was an exchange of gunfire, we wouldn't be directly in harm's way. Uh, um, we, we would be sort of under the wings of protection of, um, of people who are trained to do this. And so in advancing into that scene, we, we tried as much as possible to take their lead um, because A, that's, you know, any, any life situation like that is dangerous. But this one was specifically dangerous and difficult given the number of buildings that, um, that are housed in the, in the Ducid complex. We didn't know where um, the terrorists were. We didn't know where the, gun, the gunfire could come from or, in, or if indeed... Um, there was a sniper, as as we had, you know, thought as we were going in. So what we chose to do was to try as much as possible to take the lead uh, from um, security agencies and be behind them as they advanced, so that we would also not interfere 
with um, the work that they had come to do was a very important role that they were playing at the time. So I, I really don't have a more nuanced explanation other than we, we tried as much as possible to take their lead and take the precautions that we, we, we could in the, under, under the circumstances, finding places that would be difficult to aim at, sticking as close as possible to the walls, advancing very tentatively, and trying as far as possible not to interfere with the, res the rescue efforts and um, the efforts of security, um, members of the security agencies in finding the perpetrators of these attacks. Now, some US and uh, Europe-based publications, including the uh, New York Times, are getting a lot of flack for publishing pictures of dead bodies. Mm -hmm. Now, the New York Times says it understands why readers are upset, but it also wants to convey the horror of the attack. I'm just curious where you stand in this debate. <sighs> that, it's, a, it's a difficult one. That's, that's really a difficult um, editorial judgment to make. Although in this context, I'm leaning towards the, the opinion that it was an easier judgment call to make because of um, the lack of proximity that the majority of uh, the New York Times readers have to Kenya, to Nairobi and to Africa. And secondly, to the fact that, and, and we, we, we ought to be honest about this, when it comes to showing tragedy in, um, in Africa um, and in places that are not the West, a vista of, um, you know, of, of horror is something that traditionally has been painted and that fits in with the many, many stereotypes that have been created over years about what exactly it's like to be in Africa. It's dangerous, it's dark, this savagery and people are killed in the most horrendous means possible. So it's really um, a reinforcement of, of those stereotypes, perhaps even um, un unconsciously, right? I think that if, if the people who chose those photographs are honest with themselves, that bias that they perhaps aren't aware of wouldn't exist were it um, were this transposed to um, to an attack in in the states, the many 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 um, um, gun attacks that have taken place in the states, I cannot recall having seen one where I saw you know where I saw the kind of horror that was conveyed in the picture that they chose. Um, that said, these things ought to be ought to be decided on a case by case basis. There are times when showing the horror of an attack um, or showing the horror or the scale or the magnitude of a certain event requires that kind of uh, that kind of um, decision to be taken in terms of showing the, the, the true scale of human suffering. But you see, in, the, in this day and age, terrorism is a global phenomenon. And if we're honest, the number of terror attacks that have taken place around the world, especially in the West over the past couple of years, have never, never received the kind of a lack of care that the ones in Africa have and that this, this specific one has. So it's really, it's, it's really something that the New York Times needs to be honest about and really soul search about. Why is it that it was easier to, to do something like that, right? And at any rate, when the horror of a terrorist attack is conveyed in the phrase terrorist attack. You know, we've seen enough of these to know that
that it is a horrendous event and showing the horror on someone's face who is fleeing would convey that, perhaps not as graphically, but maybe just as powerfully. So it's, it's really an editorial judgment that I don't agree with, although I understand the kind of, the kind of pressure um, that the, the people who made the decision to use that photograph um, were under. I don't agree with the result at all, and I think that they really need to think back um, into what kind of biases informed the choosing of that photograph. Now, there's been a lot of comparison of the Ducit attack uh, to the Westgate attack in 2013. Now, you covered both of them. What was your experience as a journalist? For one, the the feeling was the same. The That heavy sense of foreboding was the same, um, uh, as well as... The, 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 just seeing horror in other people's eyes um, as you captured it was was exactly the same. Having said that, I'd say in terms of the response, um, the response of the security, security members of the security agencies that arrived there, I'd say that it was much quicker, better coordinated. What I what I what I remember and what I've said um, in interviews like this um, since that happened was that I could tell who the leader of each group was, given how much attention was being paid to them and how they were communicating between the small groups that would move through um, the Ducid complex. There was very good communication. And when um, some of the bigger platoons um, of the Reiki squad, of the general service unit arrived, you could tell that there already were was communication in advance of their arrival that they would be taking certain steps, certain measures. So for me, the communication on site in the field was much better. I think the communication from uh, the ministry level still leaves something to be desired because, you know, we've just spoken about 21 casualties. Yesterday it was 14 and, and it was conveyed by no less than the president. I think that when the president makes a statement about these things, there should be some finality to it. You know, you can't amend um, a presidential statement, especially with something as, as important and as difficult to convey as casualties. So there still are elements of, of um, um, opaqueness uh, that, I, that I find disturbing at that level. But in terms of the, the way things unfolded on the ground, I have to say, there, there have been vast improvements. How do you recover from reporting such horrific stories? Um, that's that's a difficult one because I think, in a sense, I'm I'm still recovering from from this this last one. Um, you know, in the past, that I've told you talk to someone. You know, but sometimes that doesn't work. Um, it's engaging in in other activities that help release tension um, and, and help you focus on on, on other things. Um, and these have to be positive activities. So I, how I recover is that, yes, I, I, I talk to people, specifically my wife, um, trying as much as possible not to transfer the burdens of what I experienced onto her. Um, I, I try as much as possible to, you know, exercise um, and exercise for me is 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 um, is important because it allows me to focus on one thing and just tune out the rest of the world and and it's it's also healthy and by the end of an, a, a training session 
you know, you feel a bit more mentally refreshed, if not physically tired. Um, I, I think if, if there's a person who's experienced trauma for the first time, the most important thing is to is to really try as much as possible to get to the root of of why you're scared, what it was like, and start to deal with that. Um, and and for that, I'd say seek professional help. Um, I have on occasion in the past, um, and um, more consistently as it so happens, sought professional help to deal with some of the things that I have found difficult. Nobody's above it, and I think. It, if anything, it's it's really important to exercise self-care, um, not just in the aftermath of an event like this, but, you know, even in terms of daily life, because you then learn more instinctively on, on how it is that you cope and how it is that you as an individual deals with um, difficult situations. Now, I shared a screenshot of a poll uh, from Afrobarometer on Twitter. This poll was taken... Um, in 2017. Now, what it shows uh, is basically a weakening of support um, in East Africa for independent media. Now, in fact, in South, uh, in Tanzania, 56% believe the government has the right to prevent uh, publication. And even looking at, you know, the sort of reaction to the attack in Dusit, um, you know, there has been some sort of you know, agitation from some people. I know it's not a clear indication of public opinion, but it tells you that there's some sort of push to, you know, basically control the media. And I'm just wondering, how do you think this can be fixed? And especially what can journalists do? What the media ought to do is is really, one, not all criticism, um, in fact, a lot of the criticism that um, we journalists receive is, isn't justified, but some of it is especially in a local con in our local context. I think there needs to be some level of introspection about what it is that um, we as journalists might be getting wrong. And by getting wrong, I mean, why is it that the, the, it feels, it seems as if that, the, the, it seems as if there's a disconnect between um, the aspirations of the public about what journalism is supposed to be and what it actually is. And the second step is to try and take measured and um, progressive but decisive steps to ensure that this is fixed. And I think one of those areas in terms of building trust is the, the kind of communication that exists between members of the public and members of the fourth estate, especially within um, legacy or traditional media houses, if, uh, as they're called. Um, I don't think the shift has completely, has been completed from the one to many um, to the many to one paradigm where um, media houses are responsive to what the public is, is saying about what their aspirations are, what their experiences are, and trying to, as, as, with as much uh, care and, and, um, and yeah, with as much, not, not care really, but to as truthfully as possible, convey those aspirations, convey those, those experiences um, of the public. I think that's the first thing. Um, I think the second thing is um, because now dealing with the, the unjustified criticism of the media is through those examples demonstrating that there really is a role for independent media, that independent media is important and demonstrating why through the work that we have done. And I think finally is to stop you know, pretending that uh, 
the media is is a place where expertise lives and i think that 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 professorial sort of almost condescending approach that some media houses have in their coverage in terms of knowing what is good for 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 the public is is part of the reason why there's a disconnect right it it just goes back to my same point a lot of people don't see themselves in the media and that's an important important discussion to be had and you can look at it through any paradigm through a power paradigm um through a political paradigm you can look at it through any lens that you will there are many people who just don't see themselves in the media and and that's something that's difficult to fix but it is fixable people will be listening to this and want to know more about your work uh can you just again just flesh out what you guys do and where they can find your uh your work we're an investigative and in-depth uh, journalism collective we're based in nairobi um we have an aspiration to cover africa um and do investigative and in-depth stories about africa um we've got a website www.africaancensored.net um where you can follow us on twitter on on @afuncensored the same handle uh, goes for instagram and africa uncensored on uh, youtube and facebook um uh, we post every week we try as much as possible to post um con- uh, content that is that speaks to the more more thematic issues that uh, people in kenya and in africa experience um so that um, there's a bit more longevity about them and i think finally and most importantly we focus on public interest journalism um so by that i mean um journalism that is focused squarely on the problems the challenges the aspirations and the experiences of a majority of the members of the public um and that's that's really our approach that was john alanamu co-founder of africa uncensored If you're listening to this podcast for the first time and you want to know more about journalism in Africa, check out my website www.dickensolewe.com. My podcast is also available on iTunes and if you have an Android phone, download it on Stitcher app. Just search for my name Dickens Olewe. And please rate the podcast when you find it. As always, for any comments or feedback, I'm on Twitter @dickensolewe. Until next time, Bye-bye.